0: strong
1: voices it's not just about one state it's not just about one community it's about
2: all of our communities the issues that face indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order i am here and now and i speak my language i practice my cultural essence of me What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialised logic are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change
0: it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere.
2: What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people.
1: A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Well, uh, hello, good morning, and uh, welcome back to Strong Voices, coming to you from the Karma studios on Aranda Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through vast channel 911 on 8KIN FM in Alice Springs, Mbantua, via the Karma app and online at karma.com.au. Today is Wednesday, the 21st of August. My name is Paul Wiles and today I'm filling in for Carl Dowling who um, is not feeling too good today. We hope he's uh, feeling better tomorrow. Well, coming up on today's program we'll be uh, having a uh, look at Dr. Debbie Begali's new research paper. Uh, Debbie Begali is a First Nations researcher at Griffiths University. She has been named the two thousand 2019 winner of the prestigious Stanner Award for an analysis of racism in the Australian public service. Uh, not not an issue that's new, but certainly uh, Debbie Begales, uh, her research paper will open up a can of worms. Uh, already in South Australia, uh, a new um, report there has indicated. Uh, All is not well within the South Australian Public Service, particularly for First Nations peoples working in there. Uh, A little later in the program uh, we'll be catching up with uh, the Garang Garang Wacka Waka man Alwyn Doolan uh, who was the uh, carrier of um, three message sticks from over 50 First Nations communities um, to the Prime Minister Uh, unfortunately Scott Morrison uh, was um, not able to meet up with Alwyn Uh, he um, was uh, refu well uh, we can say he refused to meet him um we don't know for what reason but uh, obviously alwyn uh, has a significant um message to share with the nation about his journey, but more importantly, what was behind the message. And uh, we do have to question why Scott Morrison wasn't uh, prepared to uh, sit down and have a yarn with Alwyn. Uh, We'll also hear uh, from the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news uh, from uh, local and community wrap-up. But first, here's a song from Stuart Nugget. This is Kathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. And welcome back to the program. I'm Paul Wiles. Well, as we mentioned a little earlier, Dr. Debbie Begali has been named the 2019 winner of the prestigious Stanner Award. Uh, Dr. Begali, who worked uh, for the public service herself for uh, 14 years, um, is uh, the uh, author of the research paper which is titled Maintaining the Racial Contract, Everyday Racism... And the impact of racial microaggressions on Indigenous employees in the Australian public service. The uh, paper investigates the experiences of 21 uh, First Nations employees of the APS. We caught up with uh, Debbie Begali, uh, and uh, she tells us first a little bit about her own journey, but uh, and then we get down to the nasty detail. The uh, nasty details uh, that she reveals in the paper.
2: My name's Deb Bargalley. I'm a Camilleroy in Wanneroo from northwest New South Wales. My family are from around the Tamworth and Moree areas. I grew up in Wollongong, so my parents left um, a location called Warris Creek just outside of Wahlo Aboriginal Reserve where my father's family were located. He moved to Wollongong and I grew up in a place called Depto. So I went to um, high school in Depto, and um, I had a good life growing up there but school was a bit problematic. I was really into sport and I wanted to be a PE teacher and um, school at the time told me at the end of year 10 that um, playing sport wasn't good enough reason to stay in school and that um, I wasn't able to continue to progressed to my high school certificate so more or less they said that I wasn't smart enough and there's nothing like being told that you're not good enough to make you sort of like wonder where you go to next. So I left school at the age of 15. My dad sent me to secretarial school so that's where I got my initial skills and I worked in different secretarial administrative roles most of my younger life. In my early 20s I decided to go traveling at about 24, 25 so I packed up from Wollongong and went to London like many like young people do these days or back then there was a few people doing it and New Zealanders doing it and um, I was just working in hospital system and by day and working in a bar by night and then using whatever money I had to go travelling. So I did that for a couple of years before I came home and, and then studied and actually... You know got into developing a career when i come home from overseas i was about 27 years of age and i decided there has to be something more out there in this world for me you know i'd already sort of like opened up my eyes from traveling and working in different sort of like health environments and hospitals in the uk and i thought surely there's something more for me so i went to tafe and studied for a diploma of community welfare And I did really well with that, and after that I articulated that into a um, Bachelor of Social Science, and it was just after I'd started that Bachelor of Social Science that I um, entered the APS at a Level 5 in Indigenous employment as an Indigenous employment officer based in New South Wales. I went from there. I worked across a number of different departments, so different experiences everywhere. Um, initially, I was based in New South Wales as an Indigenous Employment Officer. Um, I was working out of the Kempsey office, so I was pretty much um, running my own show up out there. I was outposted from you know Sydney and Canberra. Um, In those days, I used to cover an area that went up as far as Grafton across to Maury and back down to Newcastle. In those days then, predominantly the work was delivering the Indigenous and implementing the Indigenous employment policies and programs of Commonwealth Government at the time. So I used to work with the different CDPs and different organisations to try and um, help them implement Indigenous employment programs. So that was really exciting and um, we were quite independent as well. So yeah, it was very good for us. Tony Abbott decided to restructure the department. He decided to pull all Indigenous employment officers out from the states and regions into major offices, whether it's in, in, the, in the capital area or in Canberra. And I actually got to go to Canberra, so I relocated and started my career down in Canberra. A bit of a shock to start with, I mean, it's really great being in Canberra because you feel like you've got a big picture of everything, you know what's going on across the country really, and you get a good sense of um, the... Yeah, issues that are going on outside of that space. However, you feel really removed from it. When we we're out in the states, you're actually on the ground and you're working on a day to day basis with with people on the ground. We're in Canberra. It's um very removed from that process. It feels rather isolating. In 2005 and 6 and again in 2009 and 10, the APS conducted an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander APS employee census survey and both the reports that come out of those surveys really bothered me in the way that the data portrayed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people primarily as complicit in their unequal position, in the unequal position that they actually found themselves in. I just found that the, the way the surveys were reported was not consistent with the narrative of those of us who were Indigenous employees in the, in the Commonwealth at the time saw our own situation. We were all in different departments, but some departments have Indigenous employee networks. So we'd get together in those sorts of forums, and certainly the departments that I was in had them, and we'd sort of like feedback whatever information we had up through the channels then. And like, what happens from there, you know, I really don't know. I think that we found ourselves predominantly without a voice. Working within the department itself, we can often be the only Indigenous person in a particular department or a particular area. Or section. We were often isolated. Indigenous employees often would not be included in meetings and uh, often excluded when particular subjects are being discussed or policies or programs that we think that we have the relevant skills to be sitting in on. In another area, um, people often go to meetings and ask an Indigenous employee to come along and they often feel that they are in a token position because they have been told... You can come to the meeting, but please sit there and don't speak. So it's very interesting. So uh,
1: formulating this research paper, I mean, you've just given us a few examples, but obviously over a long period of time, um, Mm. what it would suggest is that institutionalised racism, something that's denied by governments and bureaucrats in particular, is alive, well and kicking.
2: Oh, absolutely, and that's what uh, my research found, that racism pervades the Australian public service and that Indigenous employees feel that their engagement, promotion, general workplace interests are affected by this. One particular uh, person commented that, you know, one of the things that they'd always grappled with was that the public service... It was never clear to them why Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were important in the first place. There hasn't been a lot of research done, particularly around the experiences of Indigenous employees in the public service, in the Australian public service. Lots of research gets done about Indigenous employment per se, but not so much about the public service. I was able to look at work that was undertaken by some other people like Professor Stephen Larkin. He'd already undertaken a PhD which examined the Australian Public Service in terms of the SES and he you know, identified everyday racism and um, a racialised division in, of labour in the public service. When I was in the field also undertaking my re- research in late 2015, CAPA researchers, um, Julie Lana and Nicholas Biddle, they were also in the field undertaking research that was commissioned by the APS to understand why Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander employees make decisions to exit the APS. So they predominantly um, come up with um, a sense that the Australian Public Service doesn't really clearly articulate you know, why they want Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander employees as well. So I had a bit, um, you know, of um, other people's scholarly work that I could draw from as well. So whilst there hasn't been an awful lot out there, there was um, a couple of other pieces of work to look at. Aboriginal people, as Indigenous employees of the APS, they they know what their worth is in the APS. They know that they are there. They feel that they know that they are there to make a difference and can make a difference. However. You know, they are feeling that they are actually isolated. In my research, you know, the voices of Indigenous employees provide an important counter narrative to the destructive and pervasive myth of meritocracy and sort of reveals the ways in which. You know, white supremacy perpetuated in the APS, and yeah, that that is through their very exclusion. Participants spoke about a real lack of commitment to Indigenous affairs, which impacts on their work to make a difference for their communities. This is partly reflected by you know, ongoing reshuffling of Indigenous portfolios, or what the government refers to as machinery of government changes. In fact, at a public administration um, seminar held in 2017, Professor Tom Karma who's already spent about 45 years or so in the public service, he pointed out that there'd been 21 different ministers for the Indigenous Affairs portfolio in the past 50 years and 10 different administrative structures of which nine were within the past 30 years. And that was two years ago he made that comment. So this demonstrates how race operates in the APS, where Indigenous Affairs fails to be considered as a priority or valued by the predominant white leadership. We could be sitting in a meeting or that was about an Indigenous-specific you know, policy or something, and it's not uncommon for somebody else sitting there to say, well, why should we do this for you know, yeah, Indigenous people? What about... Um, elderly women, you know, there's something around that. You know, it's almost like there was this what about me happening, you know, where, you know, nothing could be done specifically for Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander peoples without, you know, something being done for non-Indigenous peoples as well. It was almost like there was a, meant to be a competition. The people that I interviewed had not been part of the intervention. They hadn't worked on that out in the ground. They may have worked on that in different areas within national office in Canberra. I myself was um, based out in Alice, Alice Springs, working with the Attorney General's Department on managing law and justice programs at the time. And whilst I was out there, the intervention rolled out. So I was sitting out there and watched that play out. It was actually a real shock when they rolled that out because I didn't know about it, and um, I can still recall when it happened. And um, we were sitting in our offices, which were was in the whole of government approach. I sort of think all different departments under were well, one. In one area, which was the old ASIC building in Alice Springs, and we watched them all come in with their army uniforms and their, you know, army vehicles parked outside. It was it was quite a shock and quite a you know really different environment to be part of. Um, many of us um, Indigenous employees in there at the time had to sort of like pack up our desks and leave our offices to make way for the um, intervention team. Many were you know, um, army peoples. Um, So it was a really different way to what we had been used to doing business. Primarily, we would, um, you know, travel to different communities and work with community members and, you know, um, Tanganyera Council and other members to um, develop, you know, what was required in terms of service delivery you know programs but we were sort of removed from that process and it became a very different way of doing business we were largely excluded from those processes so when people often ask me you know what can we do to fix the system what can we do to change the APS I often think that you know Through a critical race lens, I think that the system isn't broken, it's doing exactly what it was set up to do. When you think about it, the Australian Public Service, the first piece of legislation that it passed was the White Australia policy, so that tells you something about the system. I'd like to think that government might be able to at least take seriously that racism exists. The main problem is is that the APS and the Australian government is in denial You know, we have a culture of denial in the APS. And, you know, there was general consensus across the participants that I interviewed that there is a um, culture of denial of racism in the APS, you know. And, um, you know, those participants described, you know, this denial being evidence in the lack of attention given to race and racism, you know. So... We know that um, you know denial is a key feature yeah, of racism in Australia, and it's certainly you know in denial in the APS. So at least um, the APS and government accepting that you know racism exists is a very good place to start. You look at the very fact of you know calling for voice treaty truth, the very opposition to that. I mean, what we're going through now with um, government, you know, not wanting to you know give a voice to start with, yeah, you know, is is typical of institutional racism. For me, I mean, I'm just putting my trust in the expertise of the constitutional lawyers that are doing this work. I mean, you know, I'm not an expert on constitutional recognition process, but and we should be referring to the voices of those you know with those expertise, such as you know my colleague Eddie. You know, and Griffith University, and then you know Professor Megan Davies, who have been pushing and pushing to try and make this work, but you know there is constant pushback from government. So that tells you something there. In 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 and of itself, when there's such a pushback against. Voice Treaty Truth. What, what's actually required is, um, you know, the dismantling of, you know, whiteness as a system of privilege that advantages non-Indigenous people over Indigenous peoples, particularly in the APS. So that's an overturning of the current system, which, you know, whiteness dominates despite the opposition to racism. I mean, I have some hope that we can actually, you know, get there, but um, a, lot of, a lot of people are working to think differently about racism and Indigenous affairs in Australia, and that gives me some hope. But unfortunately, many non-Indigenous people that take on this journey you know, become targeted or perceived to be, you know, white race traders. So I don't know how we're going to get there, but we just need to keep pushing through. And until government commits to um, appropriately funding, I mean, you talked before about you know the people that talk about the high levels of money that get spent on Indigenous affairs. But half of that money is going, you know, into you know, the wrong the wrong hands. It's being tied up in the bureaucracy as opposed to going out to, you know, those organisations, those Aboriginal organisations that know best how to deliver services to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities.
0: Hi, guys. This is Dan Sutton, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio.
1: And welcome back to the uh, program. A couple of tracks there from uh, the old program on television, The Voice. Uh, we heard from... Uh, who did we hear from? Um Z and K and uh We also heard from uh, Gabrielle and Cecilia, who uh, were in one of those early editions of The Voice. Well, as we've reported in our news, Garang-Garang-Waka-Waka-Man Alwyn Doolwyn from East Queensland carried three message sticks from over 50 First Nations communities from Cape York to Tasmania, walking 8,500 kilometres and uh, eventually being denied a meeting with the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Uh, Alwyn, who's now on his way back home to Wurrubinda, is disappointed at the Prime Minister's refusal to receive the uh, three message sticks and says that he will continue his journey across the country to hold smoking ceremonies at massacre sites and help educate the wider community about the true story of the country. Karma's Damien Williams has a chat with the message stick walker Alwyn Doolin Doolin, uh, and uh, shares his thoughts.
3: My name's Alwyn Doolin. I'm a good name, name. Waka Waka man from the Eastern side of Queen. And I carried a message stick, three message sticks from um, Cape York all the way to Canberra uh, via Tasmania, over 8,000 kilometres, to deliver to the current Prime Minister, uh, Scott Morrison. I've won the process of um, all the messages I collected from over 50 sovereign nations, and just only recently, uh, in the last weeks, that uh, Scott Morrison has denied to meet with me um, and to pass over those message sticks. So, um, I'm currently actually walking home now, back to my community of uh, in central Queensland, uh, Orabinda. Yeah, so I've, I'm looking at um, uh, the process of um, of healing the land and healing the people, which is um, uh, one of the most entailed messages that I was looking to hand over to Scott Morrison.
0: Now, what are some of the messages uh, that uh, some of the mob have been saying as you've been travelling down to Canberra?
3: Yeah, well, the main um, common one was uh, within self-determination, you know, in in regards to our sovereignty that's never ceded. And, um, you know, it also differentiated into terms of some of our nations work best within different processes of that, you know, of of determination of how they self-govern their own nations, Um, either whether it's through native title or whether they more towards a treaty or whether some are maybe in, in constitutional recognition, but it's it's getting that free and prior-informed consent from, you know, our communities of, of having the say and having our voices heard, um, such as the silent voices from the grassroots level. Um, and I think within only 50 that I've walked through, I think there would be more, so um, I have to collaborate over the 500 uh, if we're going to go through a process of... Uh, uh, a national treaty between ourselves as to uh, an embodiment of how we kind of enshrine a voice uh, to the constitution
0: as we know um, these kind of discussions can take a long time especially for our mob you know wanting to get things right and talking it over uh, it, you know how how much of an impact do you see that sort of time it would take to to get these uh you know talks and and uh, discussions around the voice and treaty
3: well i think it actually can come a lot sooner than people think um because you know this topic has been an ongoing topic discussion for many many years and um given that you know um they the way that um Facilitating it has been the same tactic from government um, employees having representative bodies from the top um, down when it should be going from the other way from the bottom up. And I mean, within the Indigenous Affairs funding, um, which is seven point four million dollars, why wouldn't they allocate an substantial amount of money to? facilitate a summit of um, inviting the grassroots, silent voices um, uh, in a forum to, across the nation, of all the nations, um, to in one space at one time. I mean, and that could happen within a couple of months um, rather than years down the track where they're talking about a referendum. So, you know, it's just whether... And then that's what I mean. Like, I've, I've walked to try and... Uh, Trying and embody that same kind of facilitation. But, I mean, I've walked in the means of, of of the way our people have walked before, um, which it takes a lot longer time. Um, but in the hands of um, the government exercising our rights, which they're failing to do, then they're putting us at a stop-hold to our process of um, determining ourselves and what we really want.
0: Alan... When you got there and you were denied, how did that make you feel?
3: Yeah, oh, look, it, it was an overwhelming, full of emotion arriving there after such a long journey. And, you know, with the experience and everything and um, all the, the kind of uh, moments I had on, it just uh, hit me at a one stage time to, to reflect it all at once. And it was, yeah, it, it still was still a little bit surreal to me. At the moment of processing to try and indulge in what I've actually achieved and and done, Um, because I know I have sacrificed a lot and I've I've given a lot of my my energy and and, and spirit out to want to just inspire people and, and raise the awareness and the importance across the board on a national scale. But, yeah, it is quite disappointing that now that I'm I'm making that track home. But but then it goes to show that, you know, still within 2019, if I don't have, you know, pretty much money behind me, then the government doesn't want nothing to do with us, So mm, unfortunately.
0: Well, you you did manage to uh, have a chat with uh, Indigenous Affairs Minister Ken White, Senator Pat Dodson, Senator Rachel Mm -hmm. Seward and and some other people. How did that um, sort of... uh, Make you feel to be able to at least talk to those people.
3: Yeah, look, that was you know I, I greatly respect their acknowledgement and, and their time for um, meeting with me and, and having that uh, allocation. To, yeah, to talk with me about what the communities were saying, and you know they they're being the leaders inside those walls of uh, representation. Uh, to make changes within indigenous affairs I um, try to, to put across the guidance of um, from that uh, local community level that they're not necessarily uh, uh, grasping um, or they're out of touch um, and it was yeah it was interesting also to hear the, the feedback of what was happening from within side uh, as well from the government perspective um, and how to kind of uh, redirect that um, that that fear that comes with um, uh, a lot within kind of just in the Australian public and within government of um, when we're talking land rights and, and also sovereignty um, you know that they're thinking that they're going to be losing something but they haven't lost anything when our people have lost a lot and you know we've always been compromising and we're always making the journey halfway but they're not meeting us there at the other end so you know, it has to be a two way street here, um, when it comes to discussions of um us people putting our rights in, in, in um in order.
0: And Ellen, do you think uh by disarming that fear we will be able to get a little bit more further down the line? Yeah, definitely.
3: You know, within the parts of truth telling, you know, it's it's um it's it's gotta be um you know, it's gotta be accountable. Um, for the history that we share here, since colonization, uh, you know, since the period colonies have established here, then you know, but then you also have to look at the aspects of the history prior to colonization that we have, um, and that we only have, that we have the only ability to share and showcase that with the impacts of the colonial impositions that we're still facing today. You know, need to take full effect of. What has happened really has ripple effect into our communities and our spiritual well beings, and and has caused us to the detrimental value of land, and it has a whole, you know, the whole intricate web of design that was um, placed here from our creation um, has been dismanaged, and and the ego of dominance over it from the, uh, you know, from the, the white male supremacists. Uh, so. And we need to change that within this mentality of the Australian public spheres of of um, what their roles and responsibilities play within the systems of the original systems that we're here um, in our, in our law.
0: Now, Alan, you are heading back home. Um, so, where to from here when you get back home? What's what are you going to be looking at trying to do um, into the future?
3: Yeah, so look, I'm going to be still facilitating um, the two-part process of uh, the healing motion, which is the third message stick I was looking to hand over, uh, which entails um, like a process of a process. I think when we're if we're going to go for a voice or some representation uh, on a federal level, I think we need to go back and start at the the basics of the common um, essence of our people, and that is our connection to country and lands. And what they're doing to land at the moment is just affecting us all on a humanity level. So I'm going to go through a process of healing that land and go around to the continent. Of um, smoking ceremonies at all of the colonial frontier war massacre sites. And this entails a truth telling. And this is inviting the Australian people in to be a part of that process of acknowledging and embedding this continent's um, story to be the basis of our sovereignty and our, and our denial of our political existence. And, you know, in, enhance that, um, that history as well. And, and then so on, forth, I will then go on to uh, the process of healing uh, the people. Um, to then go and visit um, or facilitate forums at each of the 500 nations that we have at the grassroots level, um, and try and get our nations as a elective uh, representative um, that are appointed from the community, and then hold a summit and then we draft and discuss the means of our establishment or of a sovereign government body, or if we're going through a treaty or if we're going through constitutional form, but at least it's coming from the community that's been elected by themselves.
0: On that note, uh, Alwyn Doolin, thanks very much for joining us here on Calm Radio and Safe Travels Home.
3: Well, good. Thank you, Bob.
0: Uh, Alwyn
1: Doolan there talking with uh, Karmas Damian Williams who I am glad to say joins me live in the studio. Good morning Damian. Good morning Paul. And uh, Damo, it's time now for uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country. Um, What's happening? What do do you bring to the table this morning?
0: Well, um, Aboriginal science discoveries and practices will be taught for the first time in South Australian classrooms. The state government today announced a new initiative aim to increase aboriginal students interests and involvement in science subjects so this report um, from the Adelaide's Independent News says local science teachers will work with aboriginal communities and a host of partners state the department of education the Australian Museum the assessment of and reporting authority and the australian curriculum to develop a framework of learning and teaching this initiative is is in response to the acres um ACRES development of 95 new science elaborations that provide practical examples of how to teach teachers, how teachers can use Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander scientific knowledge in the Australian curriculum of science. So uh, very um, interesting there, you know, trying to t- uh, teach uh, Aboriginal ecological knowledge um, that has been around for a, a long time and melding that in and with modern science.
1: Uh, this um, we had part of this discussion going back a, a month or so ago um, with um, courses that have been taught at Melbourne University, and um, they were uh, in the process of uh, introducing um, Aboriginal cultural knowledge across nearly all of their subjects at some level. So what we are seeing from the universities at least is a uh, acknowledgement of knowledge that has been around for such a long time and up until the last few decades at least um, was considered uh, irrelevant. Um, You know, there was no great significance or importance put to Aboriginal cultural knowledge. Well, things are changing and now we're seeing academia at least... uh, the wheels are turning Mm. and we are starting to see um, some of the, uh, the halls of academia begin to understand that there's um, uh, within that cultural knowledge. I mean, we're talking of, um, you know, 40, 50, however many thousands of years of,
0: Being on this country and And during that witnessing and seeing, you know, physics, all that kind of stuff, Uh, even, you know, horticultural knowledge and stuff like that as well. There's so much um, that hasn't been told,
1: so many stories, Um, you know, a few people, uh, Bruce Pascoe um has started the ball rolling with the um, dark emu, which really opened a few eyes but uh, i I'm, I'm sure there are many, many more stories out there
0: that uh, as well, time goes on we'll we'll start to hear them Well, like our very own uh, Mr. Peter Lats, you know talking about his um bringing um you know uh, what uh, the plant knowledge of the western world and the aboriginal side as well you know the flora um studies and all that kind of stuff together yeah. um, you know growing up in uh, at Hermansburg, learning from all the old people there and then going to do um, botany and stuff like that is you know he's another person that has had that um, mix already been happening with him.
1: Well, Peter uh, is uniquely placed, isn't he, as a, <laughs> yeah. as, a, as, as a man of great knowledge. Yes. And um, obviously, he's a white fellow but grew up at Ndari. Um, and uh, as you said, uh, you know, he spent many, many years with the elders out there growing up and, and learning just a small part, a very, very small part when we talk about yeah. cultural knowledge. But uh, we might get Peter in and um, sit and have a yarn with him about, uh, I'm sure he's really happy yeah. to. See what's going on now, because I mean, we know that he has spoken about mm. this sort of thing for a long
3: time—the
1: mm. uh, acknowledgement of, of cultural knowledge yeah. um, and how academia,
0: for so long, uh, was in denial or just didn't want to take it on yeah. board. Well, I mean, and like I was just going to say, he, he learned, you know, from my great great grandma, so it's yep. pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, great stuff. Uh, any other stories or? Um, well, yeah, there is this other story here as well—a uh, well-known. TV personality, everyone, everybody knows who any dingo is Um, he's he's hoping to close the gap in remote men's health by empowering them to improve their physical emotional and social well-being Um, the Yamaji man from Western Australia is the chairperson of the indigenous media organisation Bush TV which is running a program called Camping on Country and uh, yes he'll be taking um, uh, people out to camp and to um, men, especially, to go in camp and, and talk about and heal their mental health and, and physical and emotional health as well. So let. let looks amazing. We're going to have to give uh, Mr. Dingo a call and uh, talk about
1: it. Sure. And just following up from our interview with Dr. Debbie Begali, uh, South Australian bureaucrats have described a culture of bullying, nepotism and favouritism across the public service with people appointed based on who they know and not on merit. Uh, Again, from Adelaide Independent News, which is uh, on fire at the moment, Um, a staff survey has been described as sobering and shocking by the state's integrity commissioner. We might um, follow that story up as well. So. Plenty going on around the country. The interviews uh, from uh, Dr. Debbie Begali uh, and um, Alwyn will be up on our webpage shortly. Uh, Keep in touch, and if uh, any stories that uh, you might like to share with us here at Karma, please feel free to uh, give us a call or uh, drop in and have a yarn. Damo, thanks for for joining us this morning. Thank you. Well, uh, we've come to the end of the show. We're going to go out with uh, a, a song from the Williams family, the story of Joseph, uh, in language that is? West Nanda. Yeah, Okay. Uh, we'll go with that. And then also Running Water Band. That's the show for today. Many thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow. Hopefully, Kyle Dowling will be back with us then. But have a great day. <laughs>